we acknowledge the Wajuk people and the wider Noongar community uh, on whose lands we conduct our ceremonies tonight and do our zazen tonight. May the spirit of the Buja inform uh, the words and the silence uh, of tonight. This is a talk in a series called Zen and the Passions uh, and it's on desire. Uh, please sit comfortably. Dogen uh, writes in the Kia Jukaimon, which are the uh, commentaries which we have for uh, Jukai ceremony. Um, very interesting line, he said, when you have nothing to desire, you follow the way of all Buddhas. And um, I got to wondering what it would be to have nothing to desire. Uh, we are a, a mass of desire. Uh, you know, our lives are shaped by uh, our desires. Um, we create futures based on our desires. Uh, desire is so uh, deeply uh, threaded uh, through everything we do in terms of our choices, uh, our sexuality, our relationships with the world uh, through work, uh, creation, play. So this is a big claim. Uh, when you have nothing to desire, you follow the way of all Buddhas. You know, we get maybe get a sense of this. We know this. Uh, in satiation when our desires seem satisfied uh, at least for the time being um, we also know about having nothing to desire in those broad states of peace where everything is or seems to be as it should be and we are not under the pull of desire These are fairly rare conditions but we have some taste of that surely Um, or it's that sense that you are not separate, uh, that you are intimate with the world. And in that sense you are not separate from what you desire. So in a way intimacy uh, clears away that sense of me in here and what I desire uh, out there. So there's also that. Um, which is to say that you are vast, clouds scudding through, completely unhindered. Uh, yeah. Experience of uh, profound, empty oneness. And this is what Dogen is touching here in his words. However, we can't live exclusively uh, thus. 
Um, to try to live exclusively thus would be to live without traction, any traction uh, at all. <clears throat> Our individual bodies, together with our personal needs and desires, uh, provide that traction, that counterpull. Living in emptiness may have you thinking you're heavenly, but you're of no earthly use to anyone. The way of the Bodhisattva needs hands and feet, and also common humanity, and not least, desire. Descartes wrote in his final philosophical treatise, uh, The Passions of the Soul, um, which he completed in 1649 and dedicated to his patron, Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia. He wrote that desire was one of the six fundamental passions, the others being wonder, love, hatred, joy and sadness. Yeah, uh, he felt that the, all of the other passions could be um, stemmed uh, from those six fundamental uh, passions. So a central theme of traditional Buddhism uh, is that in order to get enlightened, uh, we must cut off the passions or at least curb them. And this shows up in translations uh, into English of the second of the four Bodhisattva vows. And here are three translations of that vow which in varying degrees reflect this approach. Uh, first is, desires are numberless, I vow to cut them off. Um, desires are inexhaustible, I vow to end them all. Desires are numberless, I vow to abandon them. Yeah, um, it's helpful when Aiken Roshi translates this vow because he doesn't translate it as desires. He uh, uses the image of the three poisons. Greed, hatred and ignorance rise endlessly. I vow to abandon them. Um, yeah, which um, makes it uh, more specific. The range of desires um, is vast. Um, we instinctively think in terms of attraction, uh, particularly sexual attraction. But uh, there's also the desire for healing of the planet, uh, care for other species that inhabit it, desire for the safety of those fleeing oppression, in particular refugees, desire for the safety and well-being of children, partners and friends. In the ordinary course of things, these desires aren't self-serving and we are setting a very high bar if we just write them off as attachments. Um, so the cutting off of desire um, needs... It's, it, 
there are certain, I think that's where the, the idea of the three poisons, greed, hatred and ignorance, has got a lot more traction um, than just the very loose term uh, desires. Many other forms too, desire for fame, power, control, recognition, the desire to stand out from the crowd, um, <clears throat> as in I want to be different like everybody else, um, desire, and it goes on endlessly. Um, we want to be valued at our, to our own estimation of ourselves as well. And uh, Browning uh, wrote this, I remember reading this in high school when I was probably about 15 and being amazed. He wrote um, that a man's reach should exceed his grasp uh, or what's a heaven for? So he predicates the idea of heaven on the fact of unfinished creative business on earth. This is very providential. <laughs> um, so it goes on and on. So yeah, just that, that sense of uh, desire is very complex and wide-ranging and um, vital. In the Zen tradition... Um, there are much more radical strands to this than the vows suggest. Uh, one of them is that the passions, including desire, are enlightenment itself. Here's an exchange between the old teacher Chao Cho uh, and a monk that makes this clear. And the term Buddhahood here is understood to mean enlightenment. So Chao Cho said, it is so a glass, uh, glass he means mirror, in this case, is held in one's hand. When a child comes, it reflects a child. When an old person comes, it reflects an old person. When a foreigner comes, it reflects a foreigner. Um, this is the mirror of essential nature. And um, there's a great Khan when uh, that reflects this um, for uh, for women students of the way the koan goes a young boy is coming this way that's it so how do you respond a young boy is coming this way For men, it's uh, uh, a young girl is coming this way. Uh, how do you respond? <laughs> yeah. So he, Chao Chao went on. Passion is Buddhahood. Buddhahood is passion. A monk asked, how do we get rid of the passions? Chao Chao replied, why get rid of the passions? Why indeed? The passions, including desire itself, is a part of who we truly are, are not less than blood, bone, breath, earth and sky. The passions are expressive of the way and indeed not other than it. In terms of living the way, we neither cut off desire nor do we indulge it.
We're just there for it. This can be a challenging path. So, in your zazen, how do you work with desire? Um, what is your way to be with desire in your practice? I mean, in, in a beautiful way, desire can often feel like the opposite of true suffering. Uh, I mean, of the suffering when um, one is in remorse or in loss, uh, in humiliation, uh, all the things that beset us as humans. But uh, desire can be like the opposite of true suffering. Um, and yet can be equally the face of suffering in its way. Arthwell sent me this wonderful summary of Shunra Suzuki's talks, uh, on, which are in the book called Branching Streams Flow in the Darkness. I do recommend it to you unreservedly. And uh, here's just some of the insights that he drew. And I'll, this is about sitting um, with desire in particular. Small mind is the mind that is under the limitation of desires or some particular emotional covering or the discrimination of good and bad. So for the most part, when we think we are observing things as it is, which is Shunra Suzuki's term, uh, things as it is, actually we are not. We practice hard not to get rid of desires, but to take them into account. How do we do this? We notice them. We allow them. And sitting, uh, when we're doing extended sitting on Sazenkai or Sashin, it's interesting to observe um, how uh, hunger Satiation, boredom, lust, sleepiness, grumpiness, all pass in their turn in our practice. Arthur Wells' Shunra Suzuki goes on, The mind we have when we practice our Zen is the great mind. We don't try to see anything. We don't try to stop conceptual thinking. We don't try to stop emotional activity. We just sit. Whatever happens to us, we are not bothered. We just sit. It's like something happening in the great sky. Whatever kind of bird flies through it, the sky doesn't care. That is the mind transmitted from the Buddha to us. This is mind of... Uh, of Shikantaza. Uh, Arthur goes on. Many things happen as you sit. Uh, you may think of something, I love this expression, but your mind doesn't care. Your great mind is just there sitting. Even when you are not aware of seeing, hearing, or thinking, something is always going on in big mind. 
We observe things without saying good or bad, we just sit. We enjoy things but have no special attachment to them. We have full appreciation of them at this time, that is all. After Zazen we say, oh, good morning. In that way, one thing after another will happen to us and we can fully appreciate them. That is the mind transmitted from Buddha. In Zen, the passions are our true face, not less than the sound of the bell or birdsong, the rising smoke of incense. Uh, these lines from uh, Sandokai. Um, when you are lost and separated, the way is secure. This is very beautiful. You're sitting there, you're overcome with thought. Uh, you are completely lost. Uh, but the way uh, is intact as In terms of desire, uh, there's this beautiful poem um, by Robert Browning. So Robert Browning seems to be the poetic theme going through here. It's called Meeting at Night. And uh, desire, sexuality, fear are all very softly um, and subtly conveyed. And it feels like a good poem for a talk on, on longing and desire. The grey sea and the long black land and a yellow half moon large and low and the startled little waves that leap in fiery ringlets from their sleep as I gain the cove with pushing prow and quench its speed in the slushy sand. Then a mile of warm sea-scented beach, three fields to cross till a farm appears, a tap at the pane, the quick sharp scratch and blue spurt of a lighted match, and a voice less loud through joys and fears than the two hearts beating each to each. I want to explore um, one of the, the virtue of equanimity uh, as a state uh, where we live and practice with the passions without being driven all over the place by them. Um, equanimity uh, is not about cutting off the passions nor abandoning them, but rather including them. Equanimity is the fourth of the four Brahma-viharas, or the four divine abodes. This is in Theravadan Buddhism. This is a series of four Buddhist virtues and the meditation practices that uh, are done to cultivate them. And they're very useful and they appear in Zen uh, training also from time to time. 
And the four Brahma Viharas are metta, uh, loving kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and upeka, uh, equanimity. When the mind is in balance, free from discrimination, yet rooted in insight, that is equanimity. In Zen, equanimity is deeply rooted in the experience of emptiness and its deepening over time. Such deepening is also the fruit of long hard work with our demons, uh, the desires that haunt us, desire for freedom from pain or loss, desire for freedom from vanity and its humiliation, which over the years can wake us in the small hours. Uh, in short, it's desire for liberation itself and its healing power. And uh, I want to tell a story um, of uh, the head monk, Hua Lin, who was head monk in um, Pai Chang's monastery. Um, Pai Chang lived from 720 to 814. And um, this is a story which um, Aiken Roshi wrote a, a piece about um, a hermit with, um, who through his equanimity um, was able to attract two tigers, one he called Big Void and one he called Little Void and these tigers eventually came to eat out of his hands. This is an old story, Aiken Roshan told the story but I wanted to build a bridge to the story so I created one out of this for the head monk in this case. Um, so Bai Chang uh, wanted to choose a founding teacher for a new monastery. He invited all his monks to make a presentation and told them that the outstanding one would get the job. When the monks had assembled, Pai Chung took a water bottle and set it on the floor, issuing this challenge. You cannot call it a water bottle. What will you call it? Hua Lin Shui, the head monk, said, it can't be called a wooden clock. Pai Chung then asked the monastery cook, Gui Shan, his opinion. Gui Shan kicked over the water bottle and walked out. Pai Chung, uh, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Pai Chung laughed and said, the head monk loses. And uh, Gui Shan, who was the cook, uh, was made head teacher at the new monastery. So if you were the head monk, how would you respond to the teachers, uh, the head monk loses? Um, would you clap your hands and call out, congratulations? Um, we might smile bravely, but would our hearts be smiling? I think I'd have some difficulty with this one, and I suspect that Hua, the head monk, may have had some too. So let's suppose that Hua felt envious of Guishan 
and that he took offence at Pai Chung's words and laughter. The whole matter set fire to his complacency and seared his heart. His fall into envy and the resulting shame and humiliation were made even worse for him because Pai Chung had once suggested that Hua himself, that he himself might be the founding teacher at Mount Wei. Now he was feeling abandoned and betrayed. And because he was a sincere student, he felt ashamed at the invasion of such primitive, infantile feelings. As head monk, Hua had become attached to the eros of power, to being close to his teacher and to being looked up to by the other monks. Consequently, he experienced feelings of envy as a fall from grace. Because he would have rather died than take the brunt of such envy and self-hatred, he retired to the mountains far from the solicitations and knowing smiles of the junior monks and safe from Pai Chung's penetrating questions concerning how he felt about Gui Shan's appointment. Anything but that. Hua uh, built his hermitage deep in the mountains. The hard physical labour of building in extremes of heat and cold provided a measure of respite from his envy and resentment. But they were not gone. They returned, especially in his meditations, and because he was high-minded, he struggled with them, thinking, I should be better than this. I should be beyond this by now. A wandering monk brought him news that Guishan was having trouble establishing the new monastery at Mount Guay. Even after some years, the only inhabitants there were Guishan and the monkeys. Yet even news of Guishan's difficulty did nothing to ease the envy that Hua felt. Even the complete abandonment of the project wouldn't have done that. Sitting late one night trying to practice sympathetic joy uh, for Guishan with Pai Chung's, the teacher's words, still circling in his mind, Hua suddenly heard the words, the head monk loses as if for the first time. They were no longer directed at him, circumscribing his life as abject and infantile. They were just the head monk losers. Like a wave crashing on the beach, or the clouds silvered by moonlight, just visible through the back window of his hermitage. Hua wept and bowed in the direction of Pai Chang's monastery. Then, in the immensity of his relief, he bowed in the direction of Mount Guay. That opening in the midst of his struggle deeply transformed his life. Legend had it that Hua had taken to feeding two abandoned tiger cubs. He would leave meat for them, which they would hungrily seize, then retreat back into the wilderness of rock and pine. Hua hadn't been able to tame them. Now they came to him readily and took food from his hands and sitting regally behind his hermitage they guarded him against other marauding beasts. Hua felt that his companionship with them was somehow linked to his experience that memorable night when he truly experienced Bai Chung's words. 
So he named the tigers Big Void and Little Void. As the years passed, Hua enjoyed his life as a hermit on the trackless secluded mountain. His reputation grew and many people came to pay respects and to receive his teachings. Robert Aitken tells a story about Hua and his tigers to illustrate uh, Hua's mature style. One day a high official called upon Hua and remarked, it must be very inconvenient to live by yourself in this way without an attendant, Hua said. Not at all, said Hua, because I have two attendants. Turning his head, he called out, Big Void, Little Void. In response to his call, two tigers appeared from the back of the hermitage, roaring fiercely. The high official was frightened out of his wits. Hua spoke to the tiger, saying, this is an important guest. Be quiet and courteous. The two tigers crouched at his feet and were as gentle as kittens. Having done the hard work of bearing with what is hardest to bear, we emerge blinking in the sunlight and find that the tigers come at our bidding and enjoy our company. They get all the jokes and they know exactly what to do to make a terrified politician feel completely at home. We could do some more tigers in Oz, I think. <laughs> yeah, the image of Hua Lin, the head monk, that is, um, sitting on, seated on a rock with a tiger on each side of him, each tiger having come at his bidding, for me is deeply evocative of the transformative power of equanimity. Um, that same equanimity is what helps the high official to feel completely at home. Uh, in the presence of that kind of equanimity, we are at home without knowing quite why we are at home. Rather than being an antidote to passions like desire and greed. Um, we were talking about antidotes last week. Um, Kathy raised the point that equanimity um, is not so much an antidote to um, greed, I think it was. Um, but in its nature, it's more, uh, it's more oceanic and the various passions such as greed and desire and hatred uh, are somehow simply held uh, within it. I had the image of sort of drowning in it, but that's not quite right either, because in a sense, uh, equanimity is that ability to, to hold the centre um, and to be there with the, the strong feelings that you have. So this is not uh, getting rid of... Um, of um, desire, for instance, desire is held within that field. And you know, I admire both of my kids for their ability. I call it holding the centre, and that's to be in the midst of conflicted situations and being able to stay steady and to, without being pulled necessarily one way or the other. Family provides endless opportunities for that kind of equanimity or holding the center and in that regard they are an inspiration uh, to me.
Thank you, everyone.